0: Ultimately, the business matters in just three ways. Customer happiness, employee engagement, cash flow. If you don't run out of money, if the employees are engaged, if the customer's happy, you'll build a great business. Then what's the reverse of that? If the customers are unhappy because your product sucks or your service sucks, employees are not engaged because they're terrible culture or terrible leadership, you run out of money. So you don't want to wait until any of those things. You want to get ahead of the problem. That's why you need to hire drivers who can add at each cascading layer of organization. They can always get ahead of the problem. Not be reactive, but be able to design and architect a lot of those things. I need some traction. You need some traction. Let's get some traction.
1: Hey, what's up, innovators, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and disruptors? This is your Traction Podcast host, Lloyd Lobo. We're a community of over 100,000 people, just like yourself, on a mission to help you get the methods, the money, and the madness to explode your business growth. Featuring stories and tactical advice straight from those who've done it before, like Shopify, Twilio, Asana, and many more. This episode is brought to you by boast.ai. Each year, the U.S. and Canadian governments give out billions of dollars in R&D tax credits and innovation incentives to fund businesses like yours. But the application process is cumbersome, prone to frustrating audits, and receiving the money can take up to 16 months. Boast.ai gets you access to research and development tax credits and innovation funding opportunities without the headache and red tape. Join thousands of North American companies leveraging Boast.ai's software, to maximize cashback. Check out boast.ai. This episode is also brought to you by Launch Academy, an international tech hub that provides mentorship, resources, network, and the environment for entrepreneurs to launch, fund, and grow their startups. Since 2012, Launch Academy has incubated over 6,000 entrepreneurs, of which 300 have grown their startups past seed and series A, and have collectively raised over $1.2 billion in funding. To learn more about Launch Academy's programs, check out launchacademy.ca. Special thanks to our podcast partner, Content Allies. From podcast production and promotion, Content Allies helps B2B companies build revenue-generating podcasts. We recommend them to any B2B company that's looking to launch or streamline their podcast production. Learn more... At contentallies.com.
2: John, you're co-founder and CEO of Sendbird and quickly become the world's number one chat API, 100 million monthly chat users across the world's leading companies, Reddit, Delivery Hero, Yahoo, Rakuten, Paytm, and you're a serial entrepreneur, engineer at heart, expert in the API economy, and you used to be Korea's number one pro gamer or the Unreal Tournament. So you've had some really interesting career pivots, right? Software engineer, gamer, Y Combinator. Give us your backstory.
0: I joined university as a double E, actually, not computer science, um, because I thought when you get into electrical engineering, I thought you could create electricity and solve humanity's problems. Uh, Apparently, double E is where you go to create microprocessors and memory. (laughs) But anyway, I pivoted to uh, computer science just because I like building software. So back then, right after university, I actually uh, started my first startup way back in late 2007. Really great time to start a company, by the way, with the financial crisis looming right around the corner. And the uh, financial crisis is a pretty good uh, filter to see who's going to like really survive throughout that uh, crisis. And uh, so I did, did my first company for about four and a half years. We got fortunately been acquired by some other company in Japan. And then I uh, started this company with the buddies from my first startup. So we've been doing this for 12, 13 years now. But initially, I loved engineering because it had the one one of the most direct feedback loops, right? When you build a code, ship a code, compile it, run it, you get immediate feedback, right? If you have a bug, you get you can also fix it. But as you start to really build out a business, you start to understand the the different feedback loops when you have, when you're doing sales or biz dev, the feedback loops get a lot like longer, more indirect to understand like, how to navigate different like uh, cycles of feedback loops and then start to really understand how to create values and distribute, et cetera. So I think you go from that software engineers to business, really understanding how to create values at scale. So that's my career in a nutshell.
2: So very interesting career. You could start a number of different things based on your background. Why Sendbird? What made you start the company?
0: I think historically still to this day, most of my career was in consumer business, B2C. Uh, I was building like games, social games, and hardcore games, as well as like social networks, web services, Web 2.0. Nowadays, they're called Web 3, but back then it was like Web 2. We were trying to build like a, a consumer application for social network for moms, basically, where you can either find other moms in your area with similar case, find and use or buy and sell, use baby products and then set up play and et cetera. And uh, now we're trying to add a chat feature for our own application. Uh, It was like 2015, right? When everyone was talking about conversational UI, WhatsApp, telegram, everything took over the world. So we're trying to add a messaging feature. And at that point we had like built chat like four times in our career because we were building games, uh, gaming before. So at that like our our CTO back then was like, but I built chat like four times. I'm not going to build it again. Let's just go out and like look for software. So we tried like pretty much all the open sources. Like we were on the buyer's journey, trying all the different SaaS vendors, and we couldn't really find the one that was like optimized for mobile experience that looked had a modern experience. So we ended up scraping all the things we we bought and then we built it from ground up. And we're like running out of money, <laughs> just like again uh, back in 2015 before getting to YC, we were running out of money. And then we heard this thing called SaaS because we were on the buyer cycle. So we started selling on the side. We did a hackathon, pulled it out into the SDK. Start sailing on the sideline. And because we've never done like B2B SaaS before. So we started, we had this like random pricing point. So we had a like $50 customer, $100 customer a month. And we had like 20 paying customers. We applied to Y Combinator with that idea, which ultimately become a Sember today. So fast forward five, six years. Now we actually, not hundred million users. Today we power over a quarter billion users. So 250 million on a monthly basis. And that we power apps like DoorDash, Paytm, et cetera. So.
2: Wow, what a fantastic journey here. And you used other applications for chat and you said, I'll power the world with this. But w- there were some other tools at the time, right? Like Twilio and them, but they weren't serving the purpose you felt in the mobile space.
0: One easy way to think about Twilio, but we respect Twilio a lot because they really paved the, the way for a lot of API companies like or so-called API economy. I think easy frameworks to think about is like, a, think about a mobile application. Pretty much like 95% what happens within the application. Like we can handle that. Right. But 95% what Twilio does happens outside of the application. Think about SMSs and emails you get, right. A lot of the things, what they do happens outside of mobile applications. So we have to deal uh, a lot with the UI and the UX UX element versus where uh, Twilio does a lot of things with telcos, email, SMTP, things like that. So it's an easy way to think about it. But back then we are clearly not the first one in the market. We have like other competitors like layer. I think they won like tech disrupt. They had a lot of spotlight there. There were other vendors, but uh, we ended up like starting from a different vector. Like we, because we came from the gaming background, all we thought about, like, how do we get to scale, fitting as many people as possible into a single chat room versus other competitors were like more focused on -on one-on-one conversations. So we are we architected quite differently from our other competitors, which really gave us a hedge or moat around how we can build a really scalable business. And then over the years, a couple of our competitors like fell apart. We ended up like inheriting a lot of the customers from our other competitors that we ultimately became the leading uh, vendor uh, in the market today.
2: What made you apply to Y Combinator? Because YC is a big ground, breeding ground for some of the biggest unicorns like Airbnb and Dropbox and everything else. But uh, you've seen some success. You're not a first-time entrepreneur. Why apply to YC?
0: So I, I was lonely. I got to Bay Area, didn't know anyone. Uh, actually, we, uh, it was our second time applying for YC. We applied to YC with the first idea, with the um, social graph or social network for moms. Uh, we didn't get in because it's like back then, like hindsight 2020 It's like so obvious because we were like four dudes from, from Korea who never raised kids. There are a couple of single, single folks in our team we are trying, trying to build a social network for moms in the United States who never raised kids in the U.S. We're actually, we didn't grow up in the U.S., right? So yeah. I remember like PG of Paul Graham, like looking at Jessica, it's like, hey, would you use this app? And she's like shaking her head. I'm like, okay, this is how, how not to get it. But when we pivoted, it kind of made sense because we had built chat repeatedly. And then uh, our partners back then was like Justin Khan and Michael Seibel, Michael Seibel, current CEO of you know, YC. And then both were like co-founders of Twitch. So obviously they yes. knew quite a bit about chat. So um, it was almost like a product market fit. We had a partner start of fit. And then at that point, we, because we built like chat four times, you obviously knew about the problem they were trying to solve. And we we're build, actually building a solution that we want to use ourselves. So it really got us a, a nice win to get into IC. But ultimately, the reason, the key motivator, motivation was a couple of things, right? Because we we're running out of money, we needed like a, a, a reason for us to continue to raise money, but also value, get some you know, validation from outside of the company to see that what we we're doing is actually, you know, makes sense. And we're building something uh, people want. So uh, we needs, needed something to tell our investors, like, hey, what we're doing actually makes sense. The pivot makes sense, all the rationale we want to build. So, so applying to YC really gave us a you know, conviction and the validation to our investors, like, hey, what we're doing actually is going to work out, So which ultimately did. So that's, that was like a morale and a couple of rationale behind why we applied to YC.
2: So massive pivot here, social network for moms, when none of you folks have kids or are moms to the world's number one one chat API, although a social network for moms could be really huge, but very capital intensive to build a social network in the 2015s, right? How did you get your first customers? I'm curious, how did you find these people, convince them to use the product.
0: I think there's a couple of great essays on this, but uh, basically it was a brute force. We tried pre- pretty much everything under the, under the hood because like, and they were done B2B. So like, how do I get customers? So obviously you ping your friends and networks starting the startups. Like, hey, do you need something like this? And thankfully, like back then, the guess zeitge- was around like, how do we add messaging feature for our own application? Because again, messaging app took over the world. So uh, thankfully a lot of these startup or friends just wanted to like implement chat for their own application. So we started selling to friends, and then I also did a ton of outbounds. Like we got banned by or blocked by Google, you know, G Suite was keep banning our own accounts because I was sending out too many outbound emails. I'm not too proud, but I, I don't think I spanned YC Network, but I did a lot of personalized email to uh, YC Networks back then. Back then when the batches were still small enough, it wasn't like three, 400, it was like 80 to 100. So I was pinging a lot of YC founders and then uh, just cold calling, well, not taking calling, but cold emailing to a lot of folks. And then because we didn't have money, ultimately what ended up working out really well was SEO and content. So uh, a lot of other founders and early employees, we took turns writing blog content and did a ton of SEO because there was like, we couldn't pay for paid advertising, which really helped us for the inbound engine to work for many years to come. So I think ultimately a little bit of combination outbound and then a ton of inbound.
2: Early days, do things that don't scale out. That's actually a great way because it's predictable, right? You reach out to a number of people, a portion of them convert, et cetera, and then uh, content in the long term. At what point did you know that this is going to be a company product market fit?
0: So there are a couple of things, right? One, we started getting customers that we did not deserve because <laughs> like we were like, when we started working with Reddit, Reddit has been our wonderful customer for many, many years. I think we were like maybe 20, 30 people back then. So right before series A, even like we we're C stage and Reddit back then had already more than hundred million users on a monthly basis. So we clearly did not deserve Reddit or pretty much any un- unicorn for that matter. But we started getting these inbound or Reddit was more than like an view, but we started getting inbound from a lot of these massive companies who had like millions and millions of users. And back then our goal was like, how do we get to a million users? And it felt like a goal that was impossible, but we started getting pinged this uh, came from this like, consumer application that had millions and tens of millions of users. So one, like we knew the market was pulling us. And two, because we we're trying to price things and et cetera, we started getting this customer who instantly doubled our revenue. We had many instances where a customer came by and we had a pricing calculator. We built it because like, as an engineer, that's what you want to build. So we uh, started putting these metrics and, and whatever numbers customers were quoting us, they put it in and the pricing calculator gave us like six figure ACB. And back then, we never sold software for six figures, right? So we I was very nervous when I was quoting the surprise to our customers. like, hey, please don't, please, you know, don't get a or shock, et cetera. I know like, we still have room for negotiations. It, it, I spent like five minutes to make sure that customer was not surprised with the number. So it's like, it's going to be like $400,000. Like... And they're like, yeah, sounds reasonable I'm like, what, really? Just like that? So we instantly double our revenue, et cetera. So uh, when you start getting pulled by this customer, you didn't deserve and you start doubling your revenue because of certain large customers like okay maybe the market needs us we need to exist
2: the poll is one great fantastic indicator where you're not forcing people to buy but you have to also learn to sell it seems like in a way coming from a consumer background to b2b SaaS, what were some things you learned along the way to help you sell better
0: i so how about a call with customers a lot, and you know, as as the YC mantra goes, you build product and talk to customers. Right, that's only two things that really matter, other than hiring, and recruiting, of course. I never really thought of it as a selling. As an engineer, you like to problem solve, and when I hear customers' problems, like I want to solve them, regardless of like what it is about, right? Whether it be infrastructure, that you start recommending like different solutions, and part of the solution was like chat. So in the early days when I was like having this conversation, obviously our buyers like. Engineering VP of Engineering, CTOs, and like product, uh, you know, pro, uh, product managers. So, like, I get so excited. I'm like, okay, these are all like three different problems you're working on. Here, let me refer you to this like different software that's out there that's pretty, probably helpful to you. And then uh, a couple of customers like, hey, like you're like all the other vendors we talk to, they're trying to sell everything they can possibly sell. But you're like genuinely trying to like, help me solve my problem. I'm like, so, and that's how we like earn the trust of our. Partners, and still to the say, like again, most of our earliest customers are still with us because we've been building a trust and to be able to be helpful to solving their problems. And yeah, I think that's like how I saw myself was like, how do I make my our customers like easier by solving their problems, and then also like get paid along the way. And then you start to like learn about different like sales books like predictable revenue, uh, sales acceleration formula, challenger sales. You start to read these books. I'm like. Then it all starts to make sense. What am I doing? What I have been doing was basically selling. But uh, I think we're still to this day. I think we're looking the right way is to solve customers' problems.
2: And one interesting thing is you coming from an engineering background. You're not the heavy-handed salesperson. You're consultative. You're trying to solve their problems. And and if the buyer on the other end is like you, an, an engineer or a technical buyer, then their guard is automatically down and you build that instant trust, right?
0: Yeah, I I do think there's a benefit of because we're an API company, or used to be, now we're a platform company. Uh, But I do think there's a level of trust or empathy you get from customers. Like, because we've been in the shoes and we're actually, we used to be the buyer. Like we want to find a solution that we want to buy. So I think that certainly helps.
2: Did you have some milestones in those early days where it was like go, no go? Because you had the social network for moms that you pivoted into or or change direction into Sandbird. But at Sandbird, did you have a go, go no-go timeframe where you said, hey, if this doesn't hit X, Y, Z, I'm gonna move on to the next thing.
0: Yeah. A lot of people think like Pivot is like, like one day you just wake up, you talk to founders, like, oh, we should do something else because this is not working. It wasn't like that. It was actually like a six months long of gradual transition ultimately comes down to one one critical lesson that I learned from my first start was like expectation management of your employees, customers, users, investors. You want to make sure that like nobody's ever surprised. So to your point, you have to set certain like a milestone. Like if we evaluate this, it makes sense to go to the next level. So we pivoted, ultimately decided to fully pivot in 2015 May. That's when we like did a soft launch, private beta, private alpha basically. But the actual pivot started around like November or December of the, the previous year, 2014. So we had like a couple of months. It was like, can we actually validate this idea? Will somebody use us even before we, pro- uh, we build our product? Will people be want to like sign up or give us like a deal or sign a contract? And two was, can we actually generate revenue early on? So one of the things I was talking to my uh, friend who was running like a channel or a mobile analytics platform these days, but back then it was, they, he was doing a whole bunch of things for other uh, developers. So it was like an agency thing. So we asked him and he was like, yeah, a lot of our customers need this. I'm like, well, then what does it mean for you? And he actually offered, if we get an exclusive deal to distribute a product in Korea market, we'll pay you. I'm like, how much? Because I need some level of dollar to go back to our investors and tell them, it's like, hey, we have this like early traction. There's a signal in the market. uh, So we need to uh, invest more resources here. So, he actually offered to pay us $100,000, which was like we had zero revenue for three years with our mom's app. So, and somebody yeah. like dangles like $100,000 in front of your eyes. I'm like, holy, holy cow, this is it. <laughs> so, right nowadays, like, okay, $100,000 is nice. But back then, it was like it was the most amount of money you've ever seen in your life as a business. So, so we used that. So, we had to like validate is there revenue? Is there customer early traction? Are there like feedback loops that we can build with customers, et cetera? And then, so we, we carefully managed to ex- communicate with our investors say, Hey, there's a little bit of early signal here. We're not quite sure yet. We're still going to run the main business, but here are the things we're going to test. If we hit, hit this milestone, will it? So we've been like, communicating that on a monthly basis. And I think around May, that's when we actually got the revenue. We actually start getting our first real use paying customers in production. We're like, okay, this is it. Like we have to pivot because one, we're running out of money. But two, we had like real customer demand. Three, we had revenue. So we start getting traffic and users. So I think that's like how we managed the process. So it took us a good six, six months.
2: Now, you said one thing that's interesting. We're no longer an API company or a platform company. At what point do you decide to become a platform company in, in a journey as a founder? And what does that mean for Sendbird?
0: For pretty much all the B2B businesses, you start as a feature company, then you become a product company and you become a solutions company, right? So when we started out, we were like a chat API, essential, very minimal chat API company, then we start building all these like moderation capabilities, analytics, and we became a product company. Then we launched voice calling, video calling. Now we have like solution per vertical. We have content. We can educate the customers, coach them, like really help them become successful. Now we are becoming more of a solutions company. And then now this year we're starting to elevate. We used to focus on user-to-user communication. Now we're also helping out with the brand-to-user communication uh, capabilities. We also not only work with like the tech innovators and early adopters, but we also start to penetrate the enterprise market and traditional businesses are trying to become more, I guess, digitally, digitally transforming. So we're trying to now tackle the mainstream market with our holistic approach of providing a solution and the platform. And then we're no longer as a single siloed product, but we also integrate with different like CRMs and different analytics. They, they might use different marketing campaign solutions. So we now plug into existing ecosystem uh, of software that our, our customers tend to use. So we're now really becoming the platform company where people can plug in different software to really aggregate all the uh, communication or conversation that's happening on their business. You start to elevate that, but you don't, you do not want to go all the way there from the beginning. You want to start with a very, very concrete value proposition. Because uh, this was the interview that I had with YC where we we're applying. It's like, oh, we're a real time communication solution. Michael Sy was like, no, 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 you're not. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, it's like, you're, so what what do people search on Google? We're like, well, it's like chat SDK, chat API. And Michael's like, you're a chat API company. Like, no, no, but we are more than that. It's like, no, no, no. Trust me, you're a chat API company. So we ended up like switching all of our content and marketing messages to like chat API. That's how we build our internal uh, our inbound engine. But over time, we were able to elevate our value proposition to our level. But if we started there, I don't think we built the inbound engine that we had have today.
2: I mean, uh- You can build a pretty big company, at least 10, 15 million in revenue, serving one customer, offering one thing. I think the focus is really important in the early days. But as a founder, how do you decide when is the right time to add additional products? When is the right time to become a solution? When is the right time to become a platform company? Because you said it, right? You don't want to start there on day one, but what Mm -hmm. day is it? How do you make that
0: judgment? I think I think there are a couple of like thresholds or milestones they can pick, whether it be ARR, type of customer you talk to. Some customers have, some startups have to mature a little bit earlier. If you're targeting like traditional enterprises, you probably to go up the market a little bit faster, but you can also build a fantastic business targeting SMBs and you know, mid-market, et cetera. So it really depends on the business you're trying to build. In our case, there are a couple of things. One was like ARR threshold, two was like, again, the customer we are trying to sell to, like I said, like digital native business. Now we're talking digital transforming businesses. And then they also from the inbound or outbound self-service versus sales So you have to have this a couple of different like vectors in terms of like how you measure the DNA of your business or core of your business. So I think uh, that's the um, factors we consider, but yeah, I don't like cop out, but I do think it really depends on the type of business you're trying to build.
2: Now, I want to dive into these four techniques we had discussed for the session today. Uh, You talk about complexity science, abstraction layers, human capital framework, and then building emotional capital and cognitive empathy. Let's dive into each one of them with probably some concrete examples. What is complexity science and principles of convergence and divergence, and how should founders think about applying them to their business, their life?
0: Complexity science, you can think of it as like a simpler version would be like network science or mix of network science and chaos theory basically but like it's the element of how the nodes and uh, the edges of or networks interact with uh, with each other to create this like emergent phenomena. a good example would be like our consciousness right how does each neurons do not have consciousness right but when they start interacting with each other you have this like mind and consciousness same same thing with like uh, organizations you think organization is just a collection of people, but when people start to interact, you have this culture, you have this like value purpose. So a combination of people can do much greater things than uh, individuals, right? So I think uh, complex science is really understanding the interaction of each nodes and then the network and the value it creates. So I think using that as a, a framework, one a two a management framework that I use when I try to make decisions or when to decide when to pivot or continue to, you know, double down on the business is uh, really two, two different vectors. One is convergence versus divergence, which goes in the X axis and the abstraction layer, right? Do you go up the abstraction layer or go down the abstraction layer to more concreteness or towards the abstraction? So convergence and divergence, I think one easy way to think about it is like convergence is like really doubling down. How do you continue to force the company to really narrow your focus? And then get better at doing things versus divergence like okay this is not working out you want to diverge. think of yourself as a person who landed on this landscape now you want to figure out and you're blindfolded you don't know where you're headed you don't know where the uh, highest peak is you're trying to get to the global maximum the highest point in the mountain but because you're blindfolded always you can move around and you can figure out hey am i going up or down so if you take a wrong step you might actually start falling down the down the hill or to the valley Or sometimes you feel like you're going up the hill. So you want to get to the highest peak, but because you're blindfolded, you have no idea whether you are at the highest peak or you're one of those like local optimums. So then you have to figure out, am I stuck in a local optimum? Then how do I get out of it? So convergence is, think of yourself as like, I want to go up. I want to go up. Then you're going up. That's the convergence. Divergence, like, Hey, it's actually, it's okay to go down, but I think I can bet, or I have a belief that there's might be a bigger hill out there somewhere. So a divergence, like letting, it's okay to go down. It's okay to lower your AR. It's okay to pivot. That's a divergence, whereas a convergence, like, what, this isn't working. Let's go up. Let's go up. Let's just continue to focus on AR or some, some metric that you're measuring yourself against. So I think this is, uh, this is true in life, whether it be building a company, figuring out your optimal career point, pretty much anything. So I use this as a, a framework to make decisions and decide when to pivot or continue to double down.
2: How do you know you don't have like a sort of false positive or you're hitting a local maximum? How do you leverage this to get out of that mindset of him? And you know what? I may have hit a local maximum.
0: The beautiful thing about life is like, you know, from the quote from the Forrest Gump, right? You never, life is like a box of chocolate. You never know what you're going to get. You yeah. got re, to really go for it. And I learned this while I was doing a professional gaming too. When you're like in a professional gaming or pr- pr- pretty much any like professional like sports, right? You're, you're in a competitive sports. You get to this like point where you feel like your skills are stuck. You can't really beat this next opponent. Uh, you've hit, hit a slump. There's a plateau in your skill and you just yeah. have to like figure out how do you break your bad habits? You got to like reconfigure your habits and really like elevate yourself to get yourself unstuck from that moment. And then you start to grow again. So you have to go through these multiple cycles of like getting stuck and getting yourself out of local optimum to be able to compete at a global level. So again, it's like re- unlearning a lot, a lot of your bad habits or old habits and relearning new things. So it's pretty much the same thing with business. When you start to measure a couple of key growth metrics, but whatever you do, whether it be channels, marketing, sales, whatever you do, you feel like your growth has such a slowdown. Like you're getting very, very close to local, local maximum. And because you're not a you know, multiple billion dollar company or multiple billion dollars of revenue, Market's pretty big out there. Whatever you do, market's going to be pretty big. How niche of a uh, business you you run. So if you're, your growth rates start to slow down, then you know they are getting very close to local maximum. Then you have to figure out how to get myself unstuck. It's a new channel, it's a new product, new leadership. So that's how you start to make yourself. It's like, whatever you do, your growth rate starts to stall.
2: Two, two very important things you said. Market is pretty big. No matter what you do, or in many cases, at least if you're in a venture-backed startup world. And then the second thing is when you start hitting plateaus, what metrics do you use to determine to go up or down?
0: Ultimately, the best metrics, like whatever the customer finds value in you, right? Let's say if your customer think number of users is the most important value that they're going to measure, you should measure yourself against that. If you're in a data cloud storage or data analytics, like how many megabytes or gigabytes or data you process or how many rows of data based on your processing. So think about, think through the lens of the customer's value. What is the value that they're measuring yourself? Uh, and then how they decide to buy from you or not is ultimately the value that you're creating. So measure yourself against that. So we internally, we track a couple of different metrics that are, we think is a good Uh, validation of customer, creating customer value. We measure things like daily engaged users. How many people are not just like connecting to chat or connecting to our platform, but actually exchanging messages or reading, actively reading messages or sending messages, right? Things like that. Or from business perspective, we also measure things like, you know, ARR, gross dollar retention. So a couple of, you know, SaaS metrics, plus whatever the product usage, product uh, metric that you're trying to measure and see if you can continue to grow that or not. And again, like I remember like, I think Twilio, I met with a lot of Twilio's investors and Twilio, I think initially their Series A deck, something like their market size was like 200 million or 400 million. Obviously they're doing much, much bigger now in terms of pure revenue, but the entire market size for CPAS back then was assumed to be hundreds of millions of dollars. Obviously that's compl- uh, that turned out to be quite false. Market are a lot greater than that. So I, I think that's what I'm, what I'm saying. It's like markets usually bigger than what you assume is even the investors underestimate your market size, even the founders underestimate your market size. So have a belief that there's a lot of people out there that are willing to buy your, whatever you're building. So yeah, keep up focusing on the, met- the North Star metric, that customer value the most.
2: I'm having a hard time framing or understanding the concept of abstraction layers and how, how you've used it to fit into this concept of convergence and divergence.
0: Yeah. So. Convergence divergence is like, again, the x-axis. Aps, a, astriction, navigating abstraction layers is like the y-axis. So one of the most important things in a hyper-growth uh, uh, startup is like, we, can you uh, move between the different abstraction layers? To give you an example, right? In the early days, I found our CEO, you got to do everything. I, I remember still remember the days when I was ordering stuff on Amazon. Hey, we need more you know, power cores. We need to order this monitor. And we we're debating, is it going to be 24 inch, 27 inch, and 27 inch is more expensive? what your know, hearse, what refresher you want to get. So you're like really at the ground level, at the concrete level. And then once you start to you know, build with people, let's say 20 people, 50 people, et cetera, you have to move up the abstraction layer. Otherwise you have no leverage in terms of like scaling your business. And also, especially people who are, who tend to be great IC individual contributors have most difficulty going up the abstraction layer because they know how to get shit done. They know how to do the work in the right, right way. So they want to still manage in the in gory details, uh, which sometimes doesn't really really work out when the company is growing really really quickly. So you need to figure out how do I remove myself and go up one abstraction layer. So you're no longer directly doing the work, but you are working through people and systems, and that can be you know quite hard because again you're removing yourself from the feedback loop. Before, whenever you did X, you get immediate feedback of Y, but now you're like doing X, asking people to do X. And then you have to wait a couple of days and then maybe a week or a couple of months to get a feedback. It's like, oh, it's like worked out and you have like you have no connection with the direct feedback. Loop, right. So that's like when I'm talking about abstraction, are you OK with that? Some people are not OK with it. Some people love going from zero to one, whereas some people like going from one to 10 or you know 10 to 100. So it's like navigating the abstraction layer. So once you have like the managers, then you'll end up hiring like directors, VPs. Now you have like multiple layers, abstraction layers. It's going to take a ridiculously long period of time. I and mean, whatever you do, it's going to you know, get diluted along the way. So you have to work through the influence and the layers of people to get something done. And so you have to now build the systems and culture to make sure that things go in the right direction, but you're not actually doing the actual like, direct work. So that's what I mean by you know, navigating through abstraction layers.
2: Going from an individual contributor when you're a founder, sending everything from email to ordering coffee, so then becoming a manager and then having to level up to an executive is very hard. And not a lot of companies can make that journey. What are some things you've done or things you've learned along the way to make that journey successful? I
0: think there are a couple of things that you can you can use, right? One is ultimately it comes out to people. Because the only, only real leverage you have as a leader or a manager is like through people. Because like again, you have to navigate the abstraction layers, and the only way to really navigate the right abstraction layer. Think think about our own business, right? We're an API company. And if our our API is not doing our job, our customers are going to come in and start talking about the features we have to implement and start asking if there's like a, what's the root cause of this like outage or they'll try to like really understand our code. And that's not, that means we're failing as a business, as an API business. If you do our job right, then customers only have to care about the documentation and the API calls they make and the results they get. Cause like they can go to sleep at night without having to worry about what's underneath the hood. That means we're doing our job. Right. So uh, also when you hire the right people, you can't like really delegate and, and believe in these people because they'll get the job done. And the only things when they really get out of hand, they escalate to your abstraction layer, but pretty much all the other like P2, P1, P2, P3 problems, they'll solve it only it becomes like P0, then they'll es- escalate towards your way. So uh, you're also looking to hire the right people who can also become like an API within your own, own companies. So I think an easy framework was used by Frank Slootman, like a, the, the CEO of Soulplate. It's like, are you hiring drivers or passengers? What I look for in, a, in the right leaders, at least the director levels and up is we look for drivers who can be proactive, who can figure out problems, identify problems before even they happen. And when the problems do happen, they can problem solve autonomously. So we are looking for those drivers, whereas uh, in the IC level, you still want to give them, coach them so that they can, you can still voice a driver or passenger. And some, you also do need passenger along the way, but at least on the leadership level, you want to find the drivers so you can continue to increase the leverage of your organization.
2: That's a great way to look at drivers versus passengers, but you need both, right? And you're saying at the leadership level, you're looking for uh, drivers. Any mistakes to watch out for that you may have learned the hard way uh, when you're making this journey?
0: There are a ton. Never compromise on your core values because uh, core values are a very useful tool because if you don't have a core values in your organization, what ends up happening with is people fight over different personal values. Some people may like, hey, I believe in working 100 hours a week. Some people almost like, no, no, you only need to work 40 hours a week and you got to have work-life balance, et cetera. Those values will never converge because it really is you know, it's yourself. You're being authentic to yourself. But by having core values, you can align everyone to that value. Because when you hire people, you're looking for those alignment to your values. When people join, they're agreeing to the values. They're subscribing to the core values that you, you, you have. So by using those core values, you can start like really aligning the leadership and then also help people uh, run autonomously. They can make decisions as long as they're aligned to the core values. They can make the decisions and then really execute without all this like micromanaging, et cetera. So having a core value is like super helpful when in terms of recruiting, scaling up your team, and then letting the run, letting the organization run autonomously.
2: Autonomy is one of the key things that people crave, right? You don't want to bring on people and then micromanage them and tell them what to do. But what is the one thing you've learned that's been very helpful? in creating autonomy for your team?
0: I think uh, there's a good book out there uh, written by Daniel Pink a book called Drive, it talks about intrinsic motivation. And uh, I think the three factors there in the book is called A.M.P. like autonomy, mastery, and, and purpose. So you want to give purpose to people that everyone's part of is something bigger than, than themselves, uh, mastery so that people can also grow. And then autonomy is like you want to delegate and give, uh, empower people so they, they can uh, make decisions on themselves. And then uh, there's a fourth, uh, dem- fourth um, dimension that's not mentioned in that book called uh, relatedness. So I think the acronym is like Ramp now, R-A-M-P. So you want to also become part of community and part of organization that you can like really feel yeah uh, as part of the community. So you want to like make sure that when you're managing, quote unquote, managing people, uh, or if you're seeing people are being demotivated, you want to figure out like, out of these like four columns, which needs are not being met. Sometimes people, tap out, not because you know, they lack autonomy, but because they've tapped out in terms of mastery. They've been doing this for many years. They're not, not learning anything new. So when people are like about to leave, you won't, usually it's a, it's a sign that maybe two to three out of those columns are starting to like not really work out for, that, for them. So that as a manager, you want to be very cognizant of out of those four columns, which one are you speaking to? So once people have intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation are like followers, salaries, your title, intrinsic motivation is like what matters to you, right? So as a manager, once you get people or once you set up an environment where people can find interesting motivation through those like REMP, then people can pretty much uh, operate autonomously. That's when you really need to like back out like, hey, here's our goal. Here's why we are doing it. You figure it out. People can then operate autonomously.
2: Now, Tell us more about the human capital framework that you've leveraged in your business, in your
0: career, your life. To explain a little bit about what, what human capital means, there are uh, three pillars in human capital. One is intellectual capital, two is social capital, three is emotional capital. Initially, when people are just starting out their career, people obsess over intellectual capital. Intellectual capital means what your knowledge and experience versus social capital is like. Who who knows you? Not like who, but like who knows you in what way? So it's your leadership, your your basically influence and, and like reputation uh, of the people you work with. And and probably the market and emotional capital is like how you motivate people, what motivates you. So being able to be like, really manage yourself, mind from the mental health perspective, but also like be able to motivate others and also take action when when needed versus like, just like studying academically. So it's really balancing it out. But uh, the common mistake is like the more junior you are, people optimize for intellectual capital. But ultimately what becomes even more important throughout your career is the social capital and emotional capital. Because rarely... You see people really understanding how to accumulate your emotional capital and also social capital too. Because when people like jump ship every one to two years, what they're optimizing for is like fancy resume, great titles, more salaries. But what they don't recognize is they're sometimes letting go of the social capital before they actually accumulate. Because when you, if you think through the lens of an investor or any executive hiring a VP at a company, you... Obviously, go do the reference checks, right? Back channeling everything. That's like a very standard practice. What has that person done in their previous job? What what achievements have they done? What are the things that they actually initiated and carry all the way through? And for the people that they can bring along, let's say you hire a VP of sales. Obviously, you're not just hiring that single individual. You expect that person to bring on regional directors, you know, all the ICs uh, of sales reps, customer success people. For the people that are going to trust this per- person enough to join this company right this entire you're hiring for the social capital but if you let's say hop uh, jump ship too often you're not really gaining any social capital so what I generally recommend to people early in their career is like not only think about intellectual capital which obviously will come from time and effort all those things but also make sure that you're accumulating enough social capital as well as uh, emotional capital now
2: let's dive into emotional capital cognitive empathy And the trade-offs of agreeableness, what is that? How have you used it in your company? How should we think about it?
0: Yeah, there's a good personality assessment framework called Big Five Factor Model or Ocean Model. Basically, it's like openness, agreeableness, uh, conscientiousness, et cetera. So people should look it up. But uh, It's more reliable and has a high validity as a model than, let's say, Meyer Briggs, MBTI, or Enneagram. Basically, one of the factors is called agreeableness, basically how agreeable a person is. Now you think a disagreeable person is bad, but actually it's like agreeableness and negatively correlates to social economical outcomes so people who have low agreeableness tend to become leaders and not all not always because other factors matter too, but like there tend to be a little bit more independent thinking but the the downside of that and i had again i faced this challenge myself was like there are two two different kinds of empathy obviously you you need good you know e q and being able to read the room and have good empathy to be able to like good leadership, and then having built build, accumulate social capital. The issue with that is low agreeableness people tend to do better in, again, social economical outcomes, but they, again, because of the low agreeableness, they uh, tend to uh, rank lower in empathy. Now, there's a way to fight that. There are two different kinds of empathy. One is called emotional empathy. Second is called cognitive empathy. Now, emotional ca- empathy is like when you see someone in the eye and that the other person starts to cry. You don't know why this person is very very sad, but you feel this sadness, right? You ha- you resonate, you have this empathy, it's like, and you can cry with this person even without knowing exactly why. That's emotional uh, empathy. That's your mirror neuron being able to react to someone else's emotion, very very directly. Now, people with low agreeableness may not have that. Then you have to actually augment yourself with something called cognitive empathy. Basically, you simulate yourself, put yourself in that person's shoes, like really and then think about all the factors that are affecting that person. Like if I am in this situation with this amount of information, with this relationship, with this amount of work, in this like personal context too, so really understanding this person as a whole, then you can actually simulate and then be able to understand, not like have emotional empathy, but be able to understand and actually build cognitive empathy with the person. Then actually now you can actually have this empathy and be able to influence the person. This is a lot more cost inefficient way to build empathy but the, the benefit is that because you understood and you consider so many factors, once you make that as a part of your muscle memory, then it becomes easier every single time to have this like more accurate form of empathy. And then two is like, even the people with very low empathy, once they experience it and once you simulate it, you feel like then you can actually have a more sustainable, scalable empathy. I'm not saying this one, one is better than the other. I'm just saying like, if you don't have emotional empathy, there's a path to building empathy. And then I think it's really, really crucial to have that as a leader. It's like, for instance, when I was single, I never understood you know, why married people would spend time taking care of kids. It's like, hey, that's your personal life. Don't bring your personal life to work. Just get shit done, right? But once they have kids, I'm like, holy shit, like half of the population in the world go through this thing. And it's like, it's so costly, so painful. I and mean, a lot of work, there's a lot of happiness comes with it. But once you experience it, like you have this like deep uh, empathy towards the experience they're going through. So even people with low verbalness like me can still build an empathy through a lot of cognitive em- empathy exercise, as well as actually experiencing things.
2: What are a few practices you've implemented? So you're cognizant of this and, and you have to pause, right? And stop
0: and think. And it's, it's like mm-hmm. training anything. Here's a brain hack. So brain is a parallel machine, right? We are terrible. Our brain is terrible at understanding causations. Like there's a famous exercise, if you actually, if you're happy, people smile. Or if if you see something funny, people smile. But if you actually smile or you think you're seeing or having happiness, right? Then your endocrine starts to uh, come out. I don't know if it's it's been repeated through tests. But basically what, what I do was start by saying, I hear you. I understand you. I think it makes sense. It's fair. You don't necessarily have to like agree technically. Then what happens is like your brain will find cues, reasons to agree with this person. Your brain will start to rationalize this person's perspective. So actually you're tricking your brain to build like this artificial empathy with this person. And then your brain is pretty smart. It'll figure out a way to rationalize this person's perspective. That by start saying that, position yourself. So visually imagine yourself not sitting across someone else, across the table, but imagine yourself sitting next to a person and looking at the same direction, By using those like tactics, then your brain will find ways to like justify and have empathy with the person, and then ask them, okay, done by myself, <laughs> but ask them, what are the things they are considering? What are the things they're hearing, listening, asking them for facts, and then, uh, it's, then your brain will do the rest of the work to really build empathy. But again, it takes a lot of practice and exercise, but over time it works out. But one of the most helpful things is actually writing your own organization's onboarding doc and see if all of your philosophy and frameworks actually connect. Because some, sometimes people have these like different ideas that may contradict each other. But once you start writing this out as an onboarding material, then you feel like almost like creating a presentation. Then you have to make sure that all your frameworks do fall into this bigger you know, framework of philosophy and your view on people and culture then it will start to make sense. Then you can weed out, okay, what's authentic to me versus like, what's a good idea, but probably not authentic to myself or not, does not fit it within, within with the rest of the organization's like values and culture. So an actual exercise that all, pretty much all founder CEOs should try doing is defining your core values and creating onboarding that, then you can really like crystallize your thoughts and uh, as your leadership pro- approach.
2: How do you deal with empowering your teams to be more autonomous and how do you handle your personal desire to maintain a high level of standard? And you talked a little bit about this, having that mm-hmm. cognitive empathy and, and seeing things from another lens and also letting go. But how do you balance that autonomy and high standard?
0: This is one of my biggest, I don't want to say struggle. This is where you have to be really uh, pick a lane and be consistent. So I, I spoke, uh, I, I talked about this with a, a good friend of mine built many, many wonderful uni- unicorns in the past. Like, once you pick a lane, you got to stick with it and be very consistent when it comes to core values and culture. Because, you know, people change, right? Your belief may change over time. You may read a book, you may meet a person, your value system may you know, change uh, over time. But you want to understand what's not going to change in the next 10 years, at least within the organization, and really, really stick to it. And then t- to actually get back to your question, I have this like gap between my bar and standards, what I expect from people. What i think is a great work versus how patient i can be i'd be contradicting myself it's like i don't believe in people who are up and comers who haven't proven themselves yet and if i don't bet on these people i'm actually contradicting myself because like people bet on me before i had any experience right investors bet on me when i was doing my first startup people joined my company when i didn't have anything under my resume to prove that i was a you know founder ceo as a professional ceo you can still you can kind of come in and like hey here's my bar Anyone that doesn't meet the bar, we're going to like lay, lay off people. I cannot do that because as a founder CEO, I got to bet on people for up-and-comers who has a potential, who has a right attitude, et cetera. So you have to like build this consistency. So where I'm struggling but also believe in is I, we got to keep the bar high, but give people the patience and trust so that they can actually build up to that, right? meet that, and hopefully grow over that uh, expectation. Now, th- this is a real trade-off because like sometimes as an organization, you cannot bet on people for multiple years. You, these people need to step up every you know, quarter or two quarter different fast growing organization. So ultimately it comes down to the growth rate of the organization. If your organization is growing really fast, you cannot give a lot of time to people. Because either they can they meet up to the growth rate, or you have to hire someone above that, like layered person, so that the organization can have the capacity to continue to grow with the right set of leadership. If your organization is growing not as fast, then people can have enough time to grow themselves into the role. So it really comes down to the level uh, level of the growth rate of an organization. Cause like as an IC, and can set, still give a lot of you know leeway for people to learn and grow. But if you're like a manager, especially like a senior management, like whatever your bottom leg is, personal like leadership bottom leg is, the rest of the organization suffers because of leadership, leaders' capabilities or you know capacity. So it comes down to the growth rate of the an organization, and then how much of a gap are you willing to give in terms of the gap between. Your standard expectations versus where they are today, and then that gap you can compensate with time, coaching, surrounding themselves with other people, etc. But the the primary constraint there is the growth rate of the organization, or what the growth, what the organization needs. With
2: executive hiring and leaders, right? You said it right. You can't give them a lot of time because it could slow down the whole organization. What is the ideal timeframe and what are some indi- leading indicators that you use to figure out if this executive is going to work out or not?
0: Ideal rate between a manager to IC le- levels like one to five to one to seven, right? If you get to one to 10, yeah. may work out for temporarily, but people start to like tap out because you literally cannot have enough time to do one-on-ones with you know, 10 people plus yeah. uh, uh, unless you work with them for like decade plus so you don't really need like weekly one-on-ones. So basically, you have this like ratio between IC, uh, manager to ICs and cascading layers of that throughout the organization. Now, do the leader, especially based on the growth rate, if your organization is like doubling every year or tripling every year, then you can project how many headcounts this person will need to manage. Then you have to figure out, can this person elevate to the next abstraction layer in the next 6 to 12 months? Because when somebody becomes promoted or you hire someone from outside, they need, you need know, three to six months, three months at a minimum to six months to really... Ramp up, quote unquote, right? Someone who's never really managed scale usually takes a little bit more time, maybe a year. Even within the fast growing organization, some department may not grow as fast, like let's say, call it finance, right? Versus sales, headcount is going to grow very, very fast because uh, sales is a low leverage organization where the output is uh, scaled linearly with the headcount. So, based on the um, scale of the organization in the next 12 to 12, uh, 24 months of the department, you can project like how fast this leader needs to scale to the next level of abstraction layer. Usually if you're in a fast-growing organization, you can't really have more than six to 12 months. So that's why people say like, you got to fire yourself every six to 12 months. you got to like redefine your job description after six to 12 months in a fast-growing organization. It's all, if you do the bottom-up analysis of that, usually it comes out to that, right? So you can't really give more than six to 12 months. In the early days, before product market fit, you can give people like two to three years. Cause like, you don't know what's going to happen, right? You may actually completely pivot your business, like our case, from consumer to B2B API. So you need all these people's loyalty and perseverance. But once you're in hyper growth, like hyper scaling mode, honestly, you can't really give people more than six to 12 months.
2: What are some traits you look for or some key elements that this person is gonna level up to the next abstraction layer and next abstraction layer? What are some key things, traits someone
0: needs to have? The ability to navigate. Sometimes people go up the abstraction layer too quickly. So they start losing the grip of, you know, what's happening in the ground or what, you know, where the rubber meets the road, right? So they, you know, on the uh, navigate the, on the clouds, they don't have their feet on the ground. Versus some people, actually, a lot of capable people have hard time letting go of the things they used to do. I see this more often with capable people. It's like, because they know how, what great work looks like. They have a high standards. They know exact details of how things need to be done. So they uh, have a uh, hard time letting go of people, trusting people, and then let, giving enough, uh, people enough time and room to figure out things on their own. Because all great work, may outcome may look similar, but how you get there may look different based on the personality profile. If you're like, uh, to use Meyer Briggs, if you're ESTJ versus like ENFP, how you approach work is very, very different. But because people have done their work, they know exact core detail of what excellence look like, these people might come in and start to micromanage. So you really coach them to let go of people, but also hire great talent so they can actually trust and delegate. And this is actually, I, I see this happen more or people struggle more with talented people. It's like letting go of things. That's why I keep uh, emphasizing things like you have to learn to unlearn your greatness. Because what got you there won't get you there, right? What are the key steps
2: to successful hiring or, or bringing on people, motivating
0: them to join? you found actually answering a slightly different way I learned about this term called tweener I'm not a sports fan so I don't know but I heard it like in basketball there are tweeners we're like good at dribbling good at offense good at defense a little bit but not like spectacular in one way uh and which is like great if you're playing basketball and you're like neighbors right a heck of a lot of fun but if you're trying to build an all-star team you can't have like five tweeners on your team you need one who's excellent at being a center right? You need to uh, find people who are, have clear zone of genius or clear strength. And you need to augment the person's shortcomings or room for improvements with other people's strength. So that's how you build an all-star team. You need Michael Jordan's, well, I guess Michael Jordan's like grit, pretty much everything, but you need like the Scottie Pippins and they, you can tell my generation <laughs> by the players that, that I name drop. But anyway, so you, you're looking for people's clear strength and then make sure you are augmenting the person's like blind spots and weaknesses with other people. So if you look at our current executive team, pretty much everyone, maybe except for one person, have five to 10, maybe sometimes 20 years of more experience than I do. Cause like, I don't know what great sales look like. I don't know what great marketing looks like. I don't know what great finance look like. So you got to surround yourself, like it's a cliche, but be able to attract those people who have a clear strength that you can learn from, that you can inspire from, and then uh, hopefully uh, replicate throughout the rest of or the organization. So focus on the strength, and then don't try to like hire people that like, like you, Optimize towards value alignment, then focus on strength. They're clearly better than you.
2: Now, as you go from post-seed product market fit to series B, how do you build out the team? In which order do you recommend hiring people? Which is really key, right? You don't want to bring the right leaders at the wrong time.
0: So I I use this uh, framework called 2PM, people product market money. And it's a, it's a people, personal cycle, product, market money. And money. So two P's and two M's, so two PM, uh, right? So you got to hire right set of people to build the right product. And you got to go to market with the right marketing sales. And with that, you get revenue or money, right? You either generate revenue or profit, or you raise money to be able to hire more people to create even better products. So it's a flywheel. And every time you have to think about your uniqueness as a business and what in the flywheel, what are your primary constraints, right? So let's say you're a great product genius, but well, you have no idea how to go to market with it. Then obviously the people you need to hire is a marketing leader. If you're more in the SMB bottom-up, product-led growth, they probably need to focus on marketing first. But if you're more like mid-market to enterprise, sales-led, you got to probably hire a review of sales. Obviously they you know, have to go hand-in-hand. Hand. So your primary constraints become the go-to-market side, the market. But if you're like, okay, right now I'm struggling with fundraising. I know I don't know how to manage money. I feel like we're burning too much capital, but I have no idea how to measure it. They probably need somebody to finance like CFO or like BPO finance. So it's really thinking about what are your primary constraints and what is your zone of genius? What is your executive team's entire strengths and what are the blind spots that we lack? Then we hire through that, right?
2: As you look back at your career, what do you wish you did more of and what do you wish you did less of?
0: This is really a hard question because like, I think, for whatever serendipitous reasons, we, by luck, share luck, uh, a lot of things went right. But I think ultimately, it comes down to people. If you have the right, great set of great talent, and if you have more great leadership early on, you can probably grow faster and do a lot, make a lot more right decisions. I think we, or as my personality-wise, I focus a little bit too much on known people, like people that I know, continue betting on them, which I think from humanity perspective is great. But from an organization perspective, I think we could have probably saved a lot of time just looking for great talent more aggressively. So what, I, uh, what do I wish I did more of was like continue to connect with great talent out there, be more being more aggressive with the finding the next level of leadership. Thankfully, all of our co-founders is here, all of our first uh, generation, even second generation management team is still here at SEMBER, but being able to find great talent early on and just continue to leverage those leadership Is something that I wish we had done more of more frequently. A little bit less of us, as an early stage founder, CEO, I think we tend to obsess over the wrong things. Like, oh, we got to move this pixel to the right. We got to make the screen a little bit less bright, et cetera. And like we get constant battles of every single minute details of the business. Ultimately, before you reach product market fit, don't obsess over wrong things, right? When I was doing my first startup, we built a web service, uh, a social network back then. And then I imagine, Oh, what if our traffic comes, comes in so quickly. So we did like database charting also because it's consumer business. I'm like, I'm going to build a, a advertising platform and then also bidding system auctioning. So I actually ended up building the entire auction, like advertising auction system before we even like release a product, which is like now hindsight is like totally dumb and like, you should never do it. But we ended up over engineering, over building and obsessing over wrong things, constantly with my co-founders. Over, over minute details that never matter to customers. So actually go talk to customers a lot more often and early on and don't obsess over minute details. That only leads to resentment that actually don't matter to customers.
2: What's the one piece of unconventional wisdom that founders typically ignore but shouldn't?
0: I think there's a lot of touch and good things that we like to hear on Twitter or blog posts like, oh, just be yourself or follow your passion, like work life balance is great. It's like, like all of these things I think are great to hear and you should absolutely tell to everyone as a founder or CEO or as a CEO. But in reality, like being yourself is not always for out. Let's say you have a terrible anger management issues, like don't be yourself, right? Augment yourself with other people who can help you elevate your leadership. So uh, I think being authentic to yourself is important, but just like blindly thinking you are the greatest person ever and just keep being yourself will solve all the problems. I think it's a Terrible advice. So it's like following your passion also is t- tend to be a terrible advice. Because so ultimately, when you're trying to build a business, you have to follow passion as long as it creates customer value. If your passion is not creating customer value but only your pleasure, then do it as a hobby. A lot of people mistake like your passion. If you do great with your passion, will create ultimate customer value. It's like not always true. So just just because it sounds good doesn't mean it's true, right? So as so following your passion is not the goal. I mean, it's, it could be a goal of your personal life, but your business goal should be focused on customer value. And the last, like work-life balance. I mean, I could be more opinionated here. I'm generally uh, a believer of high conscientiousness and because the big five factor model, they measure conscientiousness, I rank a pretty high in consciousnessness. So maybe because of that, I'm just born this way, but I've never really yet to see any great businesses that endures over a decade plus that were built with sure luck or some walk in the park. Maybe you get luck and luck in once a while. So actually a lot of, you know, uh, studies were done on this. The highest correlate to two factors that uh, correlates to the high social economical outcomes that are highest like uh, correlation are two things. One is intelligence, obviously. uh, And then two is conscientiousness. Those two things had the highest correlation to social economical outcomes. I'm not like arguing with my personal beliefs, like what the studies show. So what I'm saying is like, hey, if you work hard, and if you, again, zone, zone of genius, right? What you're good at, so you're smart in that area, if you work hard at it, then luck tends to find you. So don't plan your, I, I think our board member said this, don't plan on cascade of miracles. Don't assume luck will find you. If you keep working hard in the area that you're actually good at, then once in a while, luck will find you, right? So I believe that like, that's why you got to do. Especially before pro market fit. After pro market fit, once you have great leaders, then you can have leverage, go on vacations, et cetera. But before pro market fit, it's so hard.
2: It like you have it all figured out on from, from the outside, right? Um, through, of course, hardships, multiple startups, and so on. Today, as you become this platform company and become a multi billion dollar company, what is your biggest fear as a leader and how do you navigate
0: it? One of my tendencies is like I'm a paranoid, right? I worry about all the things all the time. <laughs> and that's a trait of an engineer, right? So like what happens if there's an outage, but ultimately if you sum it up, right? I think was it maybe Jack Welch or Bill Gates, one of those folks said it, like you got to, ultimately the business matters in just three, three ways. One is customer happiness. Two is like employee happiness, but I I like to use the word engagement better. So customer happiness, employee engagement, cash flow. If you don't run out of money, if the employees are engaged, if the customer's happy, you'll build a great business, right? Then what's the reverse of that? If the customers are unhappy because your product sucks or your service sucks, if engaged, uh, employees are not engaged because they're a terrible culture terrible leadership, if you run out of money, that worries me a lot. So you don't want to wait until any of those things become a problem. You want to get ahead of the problem. That's why you need to hire drivers who can at each cascading layer of organization. They can always get ahead of the problem, not be reactive, but be able to proactive and design and architect a lot of those things. So yeah, customer happiness, employee engagement, and cash flow. Inverse of that is something that I worry about terribly.
2: What are some top KPIs you recommend measuring as, co- as other founders and leaders think about this?
0: Customer metrics, you can use, you can measure things like customer usage, adoption, product usage, MPSs, CSS scores. But you have to look at holistically because like once you start measuring one thing, like in the convergence framework, everything optimizes towards that. So whenever you're measuring one metric, you always need a sanity checker. Let's say you're, you're growing fast right? Your sales numbers are going up, but if you only measure that, a lot of salespeople will just end up giving a ton of discounts, right? So you also want to measure gross margin to make sure that your revenue is also a healthy one in in, any metrics, right? When you're trying to gain weight, you also measure weight, but also like body BMI or your fat percentage, right? So you want to always want to like measure the sanity checkers, like employee engagement too. Like we do, we do employee engagement surveys. We measured a couple of different uh, factors, as an executive team we take it very very seriously we have like two weeks long sessions on like what are the next actions to improve them so you do measure you know, employee engagement surveys and don't use one snapshot always measure the vectors right you measure series and then you see what changes that actually is more informative than measuring snapshot because that can be influenced by a recent fundraise or big customer deal like that can influence a lot of things but if you measure a lot of different dimensions over time then see what changes and you can really start to understand what is the DNA of your you know, organization. So I think measuring that would be important. And cash flow, obviously, like burn rate, runway, AR per FTE, et cetera. So there are a lot of good playbooks on what to measure. But I think those are like things that we implemented at
2: Through your journey as an entrepreneur, are there any books that you relied on or anything that you recommend people read?
0: Yeah. So thankfully, I still read. <laughs> I obviously read a lot, but I think ultimately it comes down to understanding what doesn't change, right? I read a lot of science related books, physics, you know, brain, psychology, because what, what's interesting about people is like people fundamentally don't change a lot because it took us millions and millions of years of evolution to get to where we are today. A thousand years of technology and culture is not going to change who we are as a fundamental human being. So reading things like, you know, cognitive science, neuroscience, delivery on the brain side of things, I think was very, very helpful. Reading anything around like complexity science really helps you understand around like behavioral economics, organizational theories. I think those are helpful. Actually, like I get a ton of lessons from biology and, and physics on how to build a scalable organization or enduring organizations. And then also like good books, like on startups, like High High Growth Handbook by Alad Gill. There are good books on startups these days. I could recommend a couple of books on sales, like creative revenue, sales acceleration formula. I think I mentioned that before, challenger sales, et cetera. Yeah. But I typically go back to science books.
2: John, thank you so much. Wishing you great success.
0: I need some traction. You need some traction.
2: Thank
1: you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Traction Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. And you can find more information and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at boast.ai. That's B-O-A-S-T dot A-I forward slash blog.